Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Welcome to the Loma Linda University Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you will be blessed by the message. Help, God. I've hit rock bottom. Hear my cry for help. Listen hard. Open your ears. Listen to my cries for mercy. If you, God, kept records on wrongdoings, who would stand a chance? As it turns out, forgiveness is your habit, and that's why you're worshipped. My life is on the line before God, my Lord, waiting and watching till morning, waiting and watching till morning. Oh, wait and watch for God. With God's arrival comes love. With God's arrival comes generous redemption. No doubt about it, he'll redeem and buy back from captivity to sin. I hold in my hands the printout of the responses that you have been kind enough to text in over the last three weeks of this sermon series. There are dozens of pages and hundreds of responses. It has been a deeply moving and stirring experience to read through them. As I've done so, I realize that maybe three realities have crystallized in my mind. The first one is this. These responses represent heart-wrenching candor. Heart-wrenching candor. I am, your pastoral team, your leadership team, is deeply appreciative to you for your willingness to be honest. Honest about the realities with which you struggle and the sorrows which you face and the temptations at which you've failed. Heart-wrenching candor. A second thought is crystallized, and that is that we now, if we ever didn't have it before, we certainly now have a heart-rending awareness. A heart-rending awareness that every Sabbath when we come here, when we have our game face on, when we're smiling, shaking each other's hands, wishing each other happy Sabbath, welcoming one another to church, that behind every smile and every face lies the potential of profound struggle, profound brokenness, profound sorrow. That awareness is clearly ours now, which says church must become more than simply greeting one another. 
I like what one of our Anthem leaders says about the community over at Anthem. You don't have to know everybody, but you have to know somebody. And that's true here. You don't have to. You can't know everybody, but you have to know somebody. Somebody who can enter into that reality of which we are now more deeply aware. So heart-wrenching candor, heart-rending awareness. But that has led me to one other thought that has crystallized, and that is in the form of a question. Now my question is, is heartwarming hope available? Can we find heartwarming hope in the midst of the challenges that we face? Is that even a possibility? So today we look at one more psalm, one more soundtrack from the life of ancient Israel, Psalm 130. Psalm 130. You may have become aware, as have I, that many times when we've gone to the, to the psalms, to the soundtrack, to the music of ancient Israel's souls, we have often been drawn to those that are uplifting and warm and promising and praise-oriented. And those are necessary. That's as it should be. But we have tended to avoid those that are the soundtracks for the darker experiences of life. I've listened to different ones of you, for example, say, I never knew Psalm 109 existed. And that well may be because people like me have avoided it. So we go to another psalm in this series, Psalm 130. And our question as we approach this psalm is, is heartwarming hope possible? Now, you will see immediately when you turn to the psalm that the byline says a song of ascents, as in ascending a mountain, a song of ascents. That means it's one of the 15 psalms that were songs of ascent that the people of Israel sang as they ascended the hill toward Jerusalem for one of the three annual festivals which they were required to attend. They would sing the psalms of ascent. This is one of those. But at a deeper level, one commentary points out, it is not just a psalm of ascent that they sang as they went up toward Jerusalem, but in the very psalm itself, we will ascend from the depths to the heights of hope. So even contained within it, there is a sense of ascending to a higher place. There's a phrase with which the psalm begins that I've been thinking a lot about in recent days. Here it is. Out of the depths. Out of the depths. So let's read and allow me to explain. Psalm 130, starting in verse 1, the first two verses. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Out of the depths. The imagery is of the depths of the ocean. Scholars tell us that for people of Israel in the ancient world, the depths, the sea, held a special terror. They were land people, not sea people. It held a special terror, and yet the psalmist uses that to describe where he is spiritually and probably even emotionally. Out of the depths, I am crying out to you, God. Please have mercy. 
There's another Psalm, Psalm 69, that begins in a very similar fashion. I want to read you the words of the first two verses with how that Psalm begins. Save me, O God, for the flood waters are up to my neck. Deeper and deeper I sink into the mire. I can't find a foothold. I'm in deep water, and the floods overwhelm me. We've all seen a television show or a movie where maybe it's a car that, that goes off a bridge into a lake, and as it starts to sink, the occupants of the vehicle, if they can't escape, are becoming increasingly, de increasingly desperate as the water rises, as they press their heads up against the roof to try to breathe that last pocket of life-giving air. If you've watched that, you know how that terror rises up within you, and you're just watching on a screen. That's the imagery the psalmist is using. I'm in the depths, and I'm crying out to you, God, for mercy and for help. Out of the depths. I've thought about that quite a bit in recent days. I've thought about it as I've read through what you texted in. The first week, we just asked you to finish a statement. The hard question about my life, I would like God to answer, is. The hard question about my life, I would like God to answer, is. Here are some of your questions. How should I interpret God's silence? I've asked you, Lord, to change me many times. What happened? How do I know I'm following your plan? My grandpa had a temper with his kids, and my dad had a temper with me. And I see the warning signs of my temper with my new son. One interpretation of the Bible says that the sins of the parents are repeated up to three to four generations. How do I break the cycle? What should I do about my health? Do you love me? Are you really coming back? These are all from this service, not from other services, from this service. As a child, I was sexually abused. My brother, who was 11, was my safeguard. He wasn't sure what was going on, but he loved me. When I was seven, we were standing side by side while playing cops and robbers. No one knew there was one bullet in the gun we were playing with. When the shot fired, I turned to look at him. The bullet missed my face, but hit his. I lost the one person who tried to protect me. Why? Why wasn't it me? Out of the depths, out of the depths I cry, Lord, hear me. The second week, the question was simply this, why am I not more honest with God in prayer? Because I wonder if he really hears. I don't think he cares because other people have bigger problems. I'm afraid. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid. 
I feel guilty. I am ashamed. I am afraid. Afraid, afraid, scared, too afraid, shame. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed. I am scared. And many more. Out of the depths, God, I cry. And then last week, last week, lament, deep mourning. God, today I deeply lament. And then finish that phrase. Things I can't talk about. My willful sins that have separated me from you. The time I've wasted away from you. The loss of my wife. That I was 3,000 miles away when my father died. Not being the daughter you want me to be. Our daughter's suicide that I'm running out of time, the loss of my beloved son to suicide. I'm so sorrowful for my loss as well as those that loved him so much. I deeply lament I wasn't able to reach him and keep him from committing suicide. It is a very heavy cross I bear. Out of the depths, God, I cry. Give me your mercy. Now, the psalmist is aware that something is causing his separation from God. As you read the psalm, it becomes clear that that something is sin. Not necessarily, though he doesn't exclude this, not necessarily sin in the sense of all the little actions. I was impatient with my wife. I got angry at my neighbor. I spoke harshly to my colleague or whatever the case might be. But more this condition, this condition of being separated from God and sensing that I'm in the depths and that I'm all alone and that God is up there and that if I have to depend on me to bridge this gap, I am lost. That's what has separated him. In fact, I want you to notice how he articulates this in the next verse, in verse 3. It says he's pondering the fact that he's in the depths, wanting to find God up there. He says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? If you're expecting me to climb out of this by myself, if, if I'm expecting you to hear me because I somehow deserve it, I'm a goner. There's nothing I can do. God, if, you, if, if you're keeping a record of sins and you almost sense the psalmist being a bit relieved that misery loves company, says if you're keeping a record of sins, who could stand? Not me. And then he says, and I think no one else do. And I would say to him, amen, I'm right there with you. In fact, I grew up, as did some of you, with the thought, somebody saying, God is keeping that record of every single sin. And if one of those is unconfessed, you're done. I know nothing Better suited to do two things, to have you live in terror of God, number one, and number two, to have you constantly focusing on your sins. 
And that's what the psalmist is saying. If you're keeping a record, I have no hope. I'll never get out of this pit. New Testament scholar Edmund Clowney writes these words in his play, No Exit. Jean-Paul Sartre gives his vision of hell. Two women and a man doomed to perdition enter a room that seems to threaten no torment, but they are sentenced to remain together in that same room forever without sleep and without eyelids. All three enter with pretensions about their past. The man pretends that he was a hero of the revolution. In reality, he was killed in a train wreck when he tried to escape after betraying his comrades. The women have even more sordid lives. In the forced intimacy of the room, their guilty secrets are all wrung out. Nothing can be hidden and nothing can be changed. Sartre's imagination has well prepared us for his famous line, hell is other people. But the moral of the play is the line of doom to which the drama moves. You are your life and nothing else. Sartre rejected Christianity, but his play invites heart searching. Who wants to say that they are what they have been rather than what they meant to be or what they hope to be? Sartre implies that hell begins when hope ends. He reminds us how desperately we need hope. While there is life, there is hope, we say. But if hope dies, what life can remain? You are who you are and nothing else. That's what Sartre says. There's no hope. You can't say, well, I intended better, or I hoped for better, or I'm trying to grow, or don't judge me on the past, judge me on the present. He, present, he says, you are who you are, nothing else. It's kind of what the psalmist is saying. Lord, if you keep a record of sins, who? can stand who can get out of the depths but then the psalmist writes verse 4 and in verse 4 there's a three letter word in English a three letter word that changes everything We've talked a bit about it before because this three-letter word appears at certain key moments in the biblical narrative in the Old Testament and definitely in the New, especially in the writings of Paul. But it appears here in this psalm. So notice verse 4. But, that's the word. Remember where we're coming from? I'm in the depths. I'm crying for mercy. If you keep a record of sins, I'm done. But, but, with you there is forgiveness so that we can with reverence serve you. But you remember, don't you, that, that when you have that little word, it changes everything that preceded it. Remember that? But you're a really nice guy. But, oh, you don't even worry about what just came out. That doesn't matter. You're ready for what's coming next. You have given such great service to the company. You've really helped us. But, oh, 
It makes all the difference. It changes what before and gets you ready for what comes next. But it can work in a positive way as well. Normally, when I see this diagnosis, it's not good news. But, yes, now I'm ready for what's coming. And that's exactly what the psalmist does here. Lord, if you keep a record of sins, I'm finished. But you are a God who forgives. Wow. Think about that. In fact, consider the words of James Montgomery Boyce who writes about this saying, here in Psalm 130, there is good news. That good news, that gospel, is that there is forgiveness in God but with you there is forgiveness, verse 4. Let that be said again. But with you there is forgiveness. What a wonderful word it is, this but. You may not find forgiveness with other people. Your husband or your wife may not forgive you if you've wronged him or her. Your children may not forgive you. Your co-workers may not forgive you. You may not even be able to forgive yourself. There is one who will, and that one is God. Write that down where you can see it and reflect on it often. Our God is a forgiving God. He will not remember our transgressions against us. He will remove them as far as the east is from the west if we ask him for mercy. Is that good news? God's forgiveness is inclusive. Verse 4 does not say there is forgiveness for this sin or that while leaving out some other sin, perhaps the one you've committed. It sets no limits at all. It says there is forgiveness. Forgiveness for any sin by anybody. Murder, adultery, lying, stealing, coveting, failing to keep the Lord's day, taking the name of God in vain. Whatever it may be, there is forgiveness with God. You may be utterly ignorant of the Bible. You may not know a single item of theology. Know this at least. There is forgiveness with God. In other words... If you happen to be in this worship service today for the first time, maybe in this service or maybe the first time in a worship service, and you know nothing about what's in this book, you know no theology and no theological terms, not theodicy, not Christology, not ecclesiology, nothing about that. You know nothing about biblic the biblical narrative, about past history, future eschatology. You know nothing about any of that. Let me assure you of one reality that you can take home with you today. Our God is a forgiving God. And that's what the psalmist in the depths is clinging to. God, if it's me getting me out of this place, I'm sunk. But because it's you, that changes everything. Because you are a God who forgives. And I would want to say that to every single one of you who has texted in a response and who has said, and sadly, there have been many, I don't know if I'm forgiven. I don't know if I'll make it. I don't know if God will accept me. I've, I've, I've confessed what a horrible thing I did a long time ago, but I'm still not at peace about it. In fact, there were enough of those in here that our next series after Easter is going to deal with the forgiveness of God. But the psalmist got a jump on us today saying our God is a forgiving God. 
So you know what that does to the psalmist, the one who's in the depths? The next two verses burst with expectation and anticipation. I want you to watch for the words wait and hope. They occur four times in the next two verses and another time in the verse after that. They're kind of, in a sense, interchangeable in some of their underpinnings and some of their meaning in the original. But listen to what he says, starting with verse, verse uh, 5. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen wait for the morning. So he draws on the imagery of a sentry on guard duty. That sentry going through the darkness of the night and waiting, yearning for the morning, watching the eastern sky to see the first few fingers of light appear over the horizon. He's waiting. Not for forgiveness. He already knows that. He's now waiting for, he says, for the Lord. He's waiting for the presence of God. He's waiting for the night to pass and the beautiful day to dawn where he can walk in the light of hope and love and joy and forgiveness. Do you know something that is true about the dawn? You cannot hold back the dawn. Doesn't matter what you do, how you try, what you pray, it doesn't matter how dark the night was, how loud the storm was, how difficult the hours were. You cannot hold back the dawn. The dawn is coming. And the psalmist says, so now that I know that God will forgive me, now I'm waiting to encounter God, and I know I will. He is expectant, pregnant with hope. I wait as the watchman for the morning. And then he repeats it again for emphasis. One of the really curious things about this psalm, one Old Testament scholar points this out, is that we don't know who wrote it. We don't know the circumstances. But we do know this. The psalmist had the conviction that when he was in the depths, God still heard him. God was still listening. He could cry out from the depths and God would hear. Now just ponder that, what that means. That means that when you're in the depths, God hears. When your soul is saturated with shame, God hears. When your heart is burdened with guilt, God hears. When your mind is plagued by doubt, God hears. When your life is shattered by failure, God hears. When you've just fallen for the thousandth time, it seems, God hears. Because God hears even when you're in the depths. Clinton McCann, Old Testament scholar, says the good news is that God will not so easily be rejected. God's presence and power can be, must be, reckoned with in every human experience, even in the depths, even on a cross. God hears. Now, you might be tempted to say, wait a minute. You don't know my life. You don't know my failure. You don't know my sin. You don't know my depths. You don't know my darkness. You're talking about an inspired writer in Scripture. 
Well, that all may be true, but remember this. Remember, we don't know who wrote it, and we don't know their circumstances, causing the eminent Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann to write this. This psalm is the miserable cry of a nobody from nowhere, yet the cry penetrates the veil of heaven. It is heard and received. And that creates hope for the psalmist. He began in the depths. Now he's waiting for the light, filled with the assurance of God's forgiveness. So you know what he does at the end? He does what any of us would do. Some moment when you have gotten good news, when you thought it would be bad, what have you wanted to do? You know what you want to do. Every one of us wants to do it. It could be something as simple as your sports team winning a game. Or it could be something as profound as coming out of the doctor's office with a very different, good piece of news that you thought you'd never get. Whatever it is, you know what you want to do. You want to find others. You want to tell others. You want others to experience the joy that you now have. And that's what, exactly what the psalmist does. The last two verses of Psalm 130, as he's waiting for the dawn of God's presence, basking in the glow of a forgiven life, here's what he writes. Israel. Now, you can substitute there the name Loma Linda University Church, LLUC. Put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem us from all our sins. It's not just the experience of the psalmist. It can be your experience, too. He doesn't deny reality. He started in the depths. But he also doesn't deny grace. He ends in the light. So we've seen into our own hearts in recent weeks it has affected your leadership team enough that we're, we're working through the next year to come in different ways of how to step into some of these spaces in what we hope might be redemptive ways. But at least know this. As we come to the end of this series, we come to a psalm where the psalmist says, God loves you and hears you even in the darkness. So receive his forgiveness and then sit back and wait for the dawn. Gracious God, you know our hearts, you know our experiences, you know our sorrows and struggles and shame. So, Lord, because of all that, we want to know your joy and your forgiveness and your peace. Lord, empower us, forgive us, transform us, and let the light of your presence shine in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Find more podcasts, videos, church events, 
and how you can support the Loma Linda University Church at lluc.org.